Hello, and welcome to today's Cato Institute Virtual Book Forum to discuss Catastrophic Success, Why Foreign-Imposed Regime Change Goes Wrong, written by Alexander Downs of George Washington University and published by Cornell University Press. I have my own copy right here, dog-eared and highlighted uh, as much as I could. Um, we do have a link to the book's website on the Cato event page, and you can get a 30% discount off the book using the code 09FLYER. That's 09-F-L-Y-E-R, all one word and all caps. Um, my name is Eric Gomez. I am the Director of Defense Policy Studies here at the Cato Institute. Regime change, or the act of removing one government from power and replacing it with another more amenable one, is a well-used tool in international relations. The United States has been especially active in this space during the global war on terror. Uh, since 9-11, the United States successfully toppled regimes in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Libya. There was also some hints in Syria that the United States might be interested in pursuing regime change there, but all, the Assad regime still remains in power. Since 1909, per Alex's book and the data set in it, the United States has toppled 33 leaders, making it the world leader in regime change. And as I am sure many of you are aware, Western intelligence agencies recently sounded the alarm bell about a possible regime change operation by Russia against Ukraine should the current crisis escalate to armed conflict. Um, as you may be able to guess from the list of regime changes successes I mentioned earlier, uh, changing a government doesn't always lead to stability in the long run. In fact, a majority of states that experience regime change also experience increased level of civil and international conflict following a quote-unquote successful operation. Downs's book asks why regime change often goes wrong. We are delighted to have him here at the Cato Institute to discuss his book's core argument and findings. Joining Alex today uh, on the panel are Ben Dennison and Melissa Willard-Foster. Ben is a non-resident fellow at Defense Priorities and the author of a 2020 Cato Institute policy analysis on this topic, uh, The More Things Change, The More They Stay the Same, The Failure of Regime Change Operations. Melissa is an associate professor at the University of Vermont and author of the book, Toppling Foreign Governments, The Logic of Regime Change. Each of our speakers will give a short presentation followed by a Q&A period. Um, for those of you watching on the Cato Institute website, there should be a, uh, a bar on your screen uh, where you can submit questions uh, to, to me, the moderator, and I will be um, reading them or in some cases grouping questions for the author or for the uh, panelists. For those of you watching on social media platforms such as Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter, you can submit a question by typing in the chat and using the hashtag CatoFP uh, capital C, lowercase ATO, and then capital FP. And with that, Alex, please uh, start us off. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, it's a real pleasure to be here today. Uh, I want to thank Eric Gomez for and the Cato Institute for making this all possible. Um, I'd like to thank my fellow travelers in regime change, uh, Ben Dennison and Melissa Willard Foster for, for being here and engaging with the book. Uh, and then thanks to all of you uh, listening or watching. Uh, out there in cyberspace uh, for taking time uh, to come and hear about uh, regime change. Um, so this book, uh, like many books, has its origins in the Iraq war. I remember as a PhD student uh, watching the initial airstrikes and the invasion of Iraq in 2003, 
uh, and thinking, hmm, I want to know more about this and how it's going to go. And uh, that got me interested in the subject. And I uh, wanted to know sort of how uh, regime changes turned out uh, over the long durée of the course of history. Uh, and so the book uh, asked two questions. The first one is, is what Eric said, which is why do these regime changes so often go off the rails when they're sort of intended to uh, have good outcomes? And then second, there is some variation. And so I was interested in thinking about why some turn out uh, a little better than others. So in my remarks uh, for the next 15 minutes, I just want to briefly define what I mean by foreign imposed regime change, uh, explain how a lot of people and policymakers think uh, it's supposed to work, point out uh, why it doesn't always work that way, lay out my theory, and then very briefly give you a sense of what the rest of the book uh, is like. I'm not gonna be able to go into that in any detail. Hopefully you will uh, buy the book and have a look for yourself. And then close with a, just a couple of implications. Um, so I'm gonna use the word, the term regime change because it's sort of in the public parlance and it's easier to say than foreign imposed regime change. Um, and what I mean by it is the forced or coerced removal of the effective or de facto government that's in power, the leader of one state by the government uh, of another state. So there's really three things inside this definition uh, to unpack. One is that the target needs to be an independent state. So this is not decolonization, for example. The second is that the target remains, remains an independent state afterwards. So it's not annexation uh, to another state. And then third, obviously the outside power needs to be primarily responsible uh, for removing the targeted leader or regime. There's really three ways they can do that. One is to uh, invade uh, the country. Um, uh, the second is to make coercive threats, uh, to threaten to use force, to, to scare the regime out of power. And the third is to work in tandem with domestic forces inside the, the target country to help bring about regime change, either overtly or covertly. And this is something that Melissa's book uh, touches on. Um, so how is regime change supposed to work? How do people policymakers think it works? Well, it seems like a simple idea, right? That the idea is you have some kind of uh, disagreement or uh, with another state, with another leader, they're not doing what you want. Maybe they present a threat and you think you can get rid of this troublesome uh, person or threatening person by replacing them with another leader uh, who shares your own preferences, right? Who is, shares your interests and is willing to do more what you would like to do rather than uh, what uh, they they would like to do. So it's there's a preference divergence. You do regime change to eliminate that. Preferences converge, uh, and you get peaceful relations afterwards. Um, so there's several in, really important assumptions that are baked into this simple idea. One is that you can do this without breaking the state uh, and uh, uh, sort of having it fall apart on you. Uh, second is that you choose leaders who actually share your preferences, and they don't always. The third is that you can get the leader to implement your preferences without pushback from the domestic population in some way inside the target state. And then last, that if you try to build institutions to support your leader, that those that, that inst institutional transformation is successful. And of course, we know that isn't always the case. So where can things go wrong? These lead directly to my uh, 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 to my arguments. One is that uh, regime change sometimes requires an invasion and invasion sometimes weakens the state so much uh, that the leader you throw out may be able to rally uh, forces to try and 
come back. You get an immediate insurgency. Second is, as I hinted, the leader may not share your preferences that you put in. Third is that even if they do, over time, a gap can open up between the preferences of the intervener and the target for reasons of domestic politics, uh, usually within the target state. Uh, and then lastly, of course, leaders want to survive in office. So once you put them in, they want to stay there. And that means they need to respond to whichever uh, uh, influencer, intervener, or their own domestic public, which sort of poses the most uh, important threat to their political survival. So my theory posits are two mechanisms that flow directly from these issues. The first is what I call military disintegration. And this is just what it sounds like. You, uh, the intervener invade a target country uh, to impose a new regime and the, the army, the military that you're fighting rather than uh, surrender in an organized fashion and get disarmed and uh, reintegrated collapses uh, as we saw in Iraq or Afghanistan and flees to uh, various areas, to the mountains, to remote areas, to the forests across the international border, where they are immediate ingredients for an insurgency. And if the leader gets away that you're trying to pursue, say like Pol Pot did uh, in Cambodia or uh, uh, Mullah Omar in Afghanistan, they can rally those people uh, or other leaders, uh, uh, similar leaders can rally those folks to, uh, to resist. Uh, the occupation and or the regime change. So you can get an immediate uh, post-regime change insurgency of civil war. The second uh, mechanism is a, is a kind of principal agent problem. Um, and so this foreign imposed regime change, you can think of as a principal agent problem. So uh, these are simple ideas, right? So I, if I want my roof repaired, it's got a hole in it. I, I'm not very good at that. So I'm gonna hire someone who has expertise in that. I would love them to come quickly before the next rainstorm, patch the roof uh, very effectively and do it all for not very much money. They would like to take their time, get paid a lot and not do a lot of work. So there's a divergence uh, just built into these principal agent problems. Um, and I'll highlight a couple of them uh, that uh, plague these relationships. One is adverse selection, right? When you choose a leader that you think will be good and they turn out to be not very good or don't share your uh, ideas. The second, which I'll focus on the most here is interest asymmetry, right? This idea that um, the, the, the interests of the two actors, the, the intervener and their agent in the country that they impose diverge uh, over time, even if they were in sync before. So the sort of logic of this argument works like this. Interveners overthrow foreign rulers in pursuit of their own interests, whatever those may be. They impose a ruler they think will be friendly uh, to safeguard those interests. But the intervener is not the only uh, actor that's trying to control this particular agent. Right? There are other, there's another actor in particular, the domestic population within the targeted state that has a say. Now, both these actors, the outside actor and the domestic population have the ability to remove the leader in some form, whether it's through elections or whether it's through violent uh, rebellion or a coup. Um, and so the leader finds themselves kind of like Gumby, being pulled in two opposite directions. If they respond to the intervener's wishes too closely, they alienate the, some subset of the domestic population, which can use uh, take up arms against them. 
On the other hand, if they sympathize too greatly with their own population against the intervener, the intervener can then uh, possibly come after them in some way. So they're kind of damned if they do and damned if they don't. This is one of my favorite Far Side commercials, excuse me, uh, cartoons from way back in the day. Uh, there's a, the devil is standing behind a guy facing two doors. One says, damned if you do, damned if you don't on the other door and says, come on, just pick one. Um, and that's sort of the situation that these leaders face. So the, the implications of this argument are that regime change can increase the likelihood of civil war in the target. It can increase the likelihood that the leader is overthrown by their own people violently. And it means that the relations between the two states can not be as good as you would have hoped for uh, when you did it. So those are the three outcomes or things that I'm trying to look at in the book. And the rest of the book is tries to test these arguments um, uh, about these three outcomes, civil war, uh, imposed leader, political survival, and intervener target relationships. And each of the, the chapters has a sort of numbers component and a, a case study component. I try to show that across a large number of cases, these uh, regime changes correlated with certain outcomes, and then to show that it's actually happening for the reasons that I say by doing the cases. So. Uh, there's three chapters on each of these things, or excuse me, one chapter on each of these things. One is on civil war, and the, ba the basic bottom line here is that foreign imposed regime changes increase the likelihood of civil war uh, in target states over the ensuing decade by actually quite a bit. Um, uh, and I'm not going to talk about the cases. There are a bunch of case studies here, and I'm happy to talk about them. I'm sure you'll have questions about them in uh, the Q&A. The fourth chapter is about imposed leader survival. And the bottom line there is that leaders who are placed in power by outsiders uh, are much more likely to lose power violently uh, than other leaders. So leaders can lose office in sort of regular peaceful means, elections and, and so forth, hereditary succession, or they can get overthrown through force. Uh, and what this shows is that um, leaders placed in power by outsiders uh, tend to leave office at the point of a gun, um, which is obviously contrary to what the intervener would like. Um, and I'll just point out, one of the case studies I look at in this chapter is the one that's on the cover of the book, which is the imposition of uh, Maximilian, uh, an Austrian archduke, as the uh, emperor of Mexico by France. Um, uh, which is resisted by the liberals uh, within Mexico. And eventually he faces the firing squad when his army is defeated a few years later. And that's sort of a cautionary tale about what can happen. Uh, the last uh, uh, chapter is about intervener target relations. And the bottom line here is that regime changes don't really move the needle much on improving uh, these relations. In fact, uh, some kinds of regime changes uh, can increase the likelihood of militarized conflict uh, between the intervener and the target state. And I'm sure we'll get into later the different types of regime changes that I talk about. One is about installing uh, a, a, a leader by him, him or herself without really much in the way of supporting institutions. The second is to put a new leader in and try to build institutions to support them, whether those are democratic or autocratic or repressive. And then a third is restoring 
the previous leader to power, who was either removed, say, by another foreign power or by a domestic coup or something like that. And the outcomes that tend to uh, be associated with these three types are that doing the one that's easiest and most common has the worst outcomes. And that's the leadership type, which is simply Im imposing new individuals. Interveners like this because it's cheapest uh, and seemingly easy to accomplish, but it has the worst outcomes. We can talk more about that uh, as we go along. Let me close with just a, a few implications. Uh, and I'm sure uh, some of my colleagues and, and you and maybe Eric will bring up the the recent uh, Russia-Ukraine situation um, where the British have sort of uh, outed this plot by Russia to uh, potentially do a regime change in Ukraine. Um, obviously, I think that wouldn't go very well, uh, but we can unpack that later. Um, so just a few implications or lessons here. One is that just because you can do regime change doesn't necessarily mean that you should do uh, regime change. We tend to focus when we do these interventions on the former, how you do it, getting it done rather than the latter. Of course, Iraq is the most infamous case of that, but it's not really an exception. And since most of these regime changes are against targets who are not really serious threats, the costs, the potential costs of doing the regime change often outweigh uh, the, the intervention and thinking about other tools and deals. Um, another is that uh, it's a very common narrative, uh, especially after Afghanistan and Iraq, or Libya, is that, well, if we had only done, only not, only not uh, threw all those Ba'athists out of power, if we'd done this or that. Um, yes, those were serious own goals uh, committed by the United States, right, in their endeavors there. Um, but they don't get to the more basic problem, which is the military disintegration and the, the interest asymmetry that often develops between interveners and, and their chosen, which is going to be there um, regardless. And there are various ways to narrow that uh, about later. It's hard to, um, uh, a, uh, do I have any further time or should I uh, wrap up there? I, um, I think we can interesting question uh, wrap up the... that I'll just. Right. So uh, I'm sure we'll talk about, I hope to talk, we talk about why the United States continues. I've a few reasons the U.S. Think about. So much, uh, and I look forward to hearing from my colleagues. Thanks, Alex. And as a reminder, I, I'm seeing a lot of questions coming in. Thank you so much to the audience for being very engaged with that. Um, for those of you watching on Twitter or Facebook or other forms of social media, uh, if you could, if you want to submit the question, make sure you use the hashtag uh, CatoFP to indicate uh, that you want to submit the question. If you, if you just do a comment, I will not see every single comment. Uh, so just wanted to say that. Um, we'll move on to uh, Ben Dennison next. Great. Uh, thank you so much, Eric uh, and the Cato Institute for inviting me to this uh, fantastic event today. And more importantly, thank you, Alex, for writing this uh, amazing book that uh, I've been looking forward to read for a while. And it's 
great to see all the uh, conversation that it's sparking and uh, the important takeaways uh, that you just outlined uh, in your remarks. Um, just to kind of build off Alex's uh, remarks about his own origins and interest in regime change, uh, I was a high school student when the Iraq war started, uh, and that got me interested in political science overall. And then in college, uh, we had the surge, the drawdown in Iraq, and people were mentioning that, oh, we finally learned our lesson that this regime change business probably isn't a good idea. And then right as I was thinking about applying uh, for P uh, my PhD program, uh, there was now a uh, attempt uh, to overthrow the government in Libya that followed right along uh, after being told that we were not gonna be doing these types of missions anymore. And lots of political science research at the time that was actually saying this is the right way to do regime change uh, and staying out of Syria shows us, you know, we should not do that kind of regime change in Syria, but in Libya, it's actually the proper way to do it. Uh, it turned out those predictions were false. Uh, things went disastrously bad. And luckily at the time, uh, Alex had written a conference paper basically predicting uh, why Libya, not specifically talking about Libya, but showing a lot of these findings about why it would go bad. Uh, and it's kind of pushed me along uh, my own journey of studying regime change. Uh, and so it's fantastic to see this book uh, come out. Um, as he noted in the end of his remarks, uh, one of the key findings uh, that Alex has uh, put in this book and also lots of his other research has focused on the differences between the types of strategies that regime changers or states that want to engage in regime change actually carry out, um, looking at kind of differences between institutional and the leadership strategies uh, that he discusses. And in my own research, I've been motivated to look at, given these vast differences we see between leadership and institutional strategies, why would states ever choose uh, to do one uh, versus the other, given the disparate effects uh, that you see uh, in the track record of these types of strategies? Um, that's the kind of the question that his work has really motivated me to explore. And looking at the, all the downsides and costs you see with institutional strategies and how costly nation building uh, as we call it, or imposing new institutions on states uh, might be, uh, why do we see states uh, ever think uh, that it would be a good idea to invest all these resources in these faraway lands to build new institutions? Um, and if you were going to do regime change, why don't we only see these leadership change uh, missions, uh, given you know how, uh, how much lower cost they actually are? Um, in my own research, what I found is I went and looked at all the cases since 1900, so a smaller subset of cases than uh, Alex. And in majority of those cases, uh, what I found is that very few started off thinking they wanted to do an institutional strategy. In most cases, um, those who want to engage in regime change talk themselves into that we can just replace the leader, install them very quickly, and then leave and get out without spending too many resources. And they largely start these missions off thinking they can do a, a leadership strategy in Alex's parlance. Um, and it makes sense because, as Alex mentioned, it's much cheaper, it's much easier. Uh, you, the amount of resources uh, that you have to invest in the mission, even if it goes wrong, you're not, in theory, uh, wasting that much resources on this territory. Uh, it's just the installed leader that has to pay the price. Um, but in a lot of the cases that I looked at, what actually ends up happening is something I call uh, the Gilligan's Island problem, where they think they're going in for a three-hour tour and they end up staying in the country much, much longer because they realize uh, the regime change regime changer realizes uh, just simply changing the leader is not going to be sufficient to achieve the political goal they were setting out. Instead, as Alex noted, it can oftentimes cause state institutions to collapse, uh, necessitating even if you weren't initially desiring to do institution building or use an institutional strategy, you are now uh, find yourselves uh, having to rebuild the state. 
Uh, Colin Powell, I think, called this the pottery barn principle uh, in reference to Iraq, where if we broke the state, uh, now we have to rebuild it. Uh, and so there's lots of uh, discussion about kind of how, in my own research, these leadership strategies can actually turn into uh, institutional quagmire, institutional strategies that turn into quagmires uh, without ever intending to in the first place. Um, so in answering the question, why uh, do we see uh, these leaders uh, have to engage uh, in institutional strategies. I largely look at the local political context in the countries themselves. So how strong are the local bureaucrats and local institutions that if you can take off the top leadership, can the tax collectors, can the uh, education infrastructure, uh, can basically all these kind of lower level bureaucracies keep ticking along in the country that the leader, the new leader can just hop in and keep going. Um, but in many cases, uh, just the mere act of taking out that uh, leader at the top ends up breaking uh, a lot of the institutions. And oftentimes uh, the regime change, the regime changer themselves didn't realize how weak institutions were before they actually arrived in the country. My two favorite examples of this, um, first, uh, the Dominican Republic in 1916, uh, uh, a country that unfortunately faced a lot of attempts at American regime change over the years, uh, through a variety of different reasons, uh, the United States sent a few Marines uh, to try to stabilize the government and reinstall a leader that had been deposed in Santo Domingo. Uh, after arising, arriving, we tried to make sure that leader could pass through a few different constitutional reforms. That way, once they change the constitution, um, we can then leave the country very quickly and just leave them installed. Uh, and we can get into the details later, um, but it turns out that the leader wasn't able to pass those reforms, realized basically in passing those reforms, he would have an internal revolt on his hand. Uh, so they just essentially uh, withdraw and step down from office, leaving the United States Marine Corps to essentially run the country uh, for eight years uh, after that. Um, so the United States with just a few hundred Marines never intending to really do much except put someone back in power, ends up essentially uh, running and building an entire new state in the Dominican Republic uh, for eight years. Uh, even in the canonical cases of World War II, which are often championed as the successful cases of regime change, um, even there, the initial plans oftentimes were just to install leaders uh, after the war and then try to leave as quick as possible. Uh, for instance, in Italy, uh, the plan was to essentially reinstall the king after he deposed uh, Mussolini in the fascist state uh, in World War II. Uh, and eventually the American and British uh, regime change uh, interveners, I guess, realized that a much more broader uh, institutional uh, strategy would have to be implemented if they were ever going to have a stable and democratic uh, Italy coming out of the war. Their plan initially just to reinstall the king uh, was not going to be sufficient. Um, so my research kind of builds on Alex's to look at kind of why you get those two different patterns emerging. Um, but the important question to ask there is if, um, if these states know that you know, they don't want to engage in institutional strategies. Why don't they just look at the local institutions beforehand, look at the state, how strong it is, and make these assessments before they actually decide to engage in regime change in the first place. Uh, and I think kind of one of the takeaways from Alex's book and uh, some of the other research in this area is that great powers, or really any state in general, is just very bad at knowing about the domestic politics in other countries. Um, we kind of know maybe who some of the top players are, uh, but for instance, you know, it's just very hard uh, to know uh, how the individual bureaucracies are happening and getting good solid information about uh, what those conditions on the ground will look like actually, actually overthrow uh, the government. 
There's lots of uncertainty before the regime change mission itself. Uh, and this leads to a lot of over-optimistic thinking among uh, regime change planners thinking that, oh, you know, I think I have a good sense of how the domestic system works. Uh, I think we can just take off the top layer, use a leadership strategy and get out quickly uh, and not really have to think much more deeply about how would we actually deal uh, with this institutional collapse that you might be facing. Uh, in the case of Iraq, for instance, uh, there was real discussion uh, before the war about using the liberation of France as a model uh, to overthrow the Ba'athist state and just put uh, somebody new in power and then leave very quickly where they wouldn't have to invest the resources like, they like the US had invested in Germany. Um, so that's kind of one way I think that this plays out is that there's because there's so much uncertainty uh, pre-regime uh, change about what local institutions will look like on the ground, uh, that's what permits uh, uh, individuals advocating for regime change to think it will always be a leadership strategy rather than the costlier institutional strategy. Um, so because of this, uh, unfortunately, I think this makes regime change sometimes seem like a viable policy tool because it seems like it, at worst case, uh, it might not work, but it's going to be such so low cost. Why not try it? Um, but they never price into those decisions kind of the longer term effects that institution building uh, might require afterwards. Um, and so my own views is that maybe one policy implication from this is uh, for everyone who's advocating for regime change, they should price in at the beginning how much a 10, 20 year occupation to reinstall institutions would actually cost. Um, because if you don't think it will cost that much, uh, if you don't think it's worth uh, the 20 year investment of rebuilding a state after you engage in regime change, that should tell you that maybe it's not worth engaging in regime change in the first place. Um, but just from looking at Alex's book itself, you should already be questioning uh, to not, whether or not you should be engaging in regime change, even if uh, you could avoid the institution building mission. Um, so in general, um, that's kind of the main takeaways uh, from my research that I've taken and built off Alex's work. Um, unfortunately, uh, there are lots of reasons why policymakers end up thinking that even if they were required to use leadership strategies, uh, that it can work this time. Uh, and I think we need to uh, do a lot more work on figuring out how we can break that habit of thinking that leadership strategies and regime change overall could be successful if we do it correctly in the future. Great. Thanks a lot, Ben. And Melissa, uh, last but not least, I'm interested to hear your perspectives and then we'll go into Q&A afterwards. All right. Thanks so much, Eric. And thank you to the Cato Institute. Um, and thanks to Alex. It's, it's great to see the final product here. This is a, a topic that's near and dear to my heart. And a lot like Alex, I, I came to studying this also um, because of the Iraq war and um, I came to it at a, at, from a slightly different perspective. Well, while Alex was thinking, gee, I wonder how this is all going to work out. Probably not too well. I was thinking, why is this happening in the first place? Because a lot of our theories of international relations just didn't seem to offer a clear answer. And, and the puzzle just became deeper and deeper to me as, as the years went by. And, you know, there was a period there where I thought, gosh, you know, maybe regime change, maybe we're done with that. And then 2011 rolled around and and, and we get uh, intervention in Libya. And you know, what became apparent through me, to me through my research is that regime change is often that low-hanging fruit, that policymakers get fed up with these alternatives of trying to correct for, for what Alex calls interest asymmetry, this divergence between um, what the intervening state wants and what the target is doing. 
And, and regime change often appears to be this low cost alternative. And I'd emphasize the word appears there. And so um, you often get sort of the new generation of policymakers saying, okay, well, we understand it hasn't worked so well in the past, but, but we have other ways of doing it. You know, these, 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 this older generation, they, they messed up because they didn't plan enough or they enacted this policy or they, they, they adopted this tactic and, and we're gonna do it differently and we're gonna do it better. Um, so I was struck by how often I saw that narrative in my own research and trying to explain why do policymakers opt for regime change um, instead of other alternatives like coercion or inducement. So Alex, this is just a great book and I, I, I highly recommend it. You, um, you do such a great job laying down the logic um, it's, it's airtight, it's, you, you marshal an impressive amount of evidence to support your argument, and, and something that you do so well is you use these clarifying examples that really illustrate the causal mechanism that you're talking about. But I think one of the, the biggest contributions your book makes is it punctures a hole in this, this argument that regime change can work if we only do it better. And, and you apply this so well to the Iraq case by saying, you know, we have, as you were saying, you know, we have these people who say, well, you know, if, if only Bremer had done debathification or, or disbanded the Iraqi military, or if only we had planned better for this. Um, but really what this, this, these arguments ignore is, is this problem that underlies regime change, which is trying to correct for this interest asymmetry and, and trying to especially go to a country where there are deep sectarian divisions and trying to, to, to construct some sort of stable government um, that can surmount those divisions. So um, with that said, I you know, had sort of three ideas that popped into my head as I was reading your book that, that I, I, I wanted to sort of get your reaction to if I could. And one of these was the, the role of outside third party intervention, because it does crop up in a lot of the cases that you're talking about, but it doesn't really appear in the theory that you present. And that is in a lot of these cases that, that you, you cite, what you do see is there's this sort of third party. Oftentimes it is a geopolitical rival of the intervening state. And, and that's the reason why there's an insurgency that's capable of, of challenging this newly installed government. And I think, you know, if, if I were Putin and I was reading your book as a as sort of a, a how-to manual or maybe a how-not-to manual, <laughs> I might say, well, yeah, this is obviously going to be a mess because um, if I install a Russian-backed government in Kiev, chances are I'm going to face a Western-backed insurgency and, it, and it's going to be disaster. So this, this arises in a lot of cases. Now, not all. I can certainly think of cases where you don't see this, but it, it does appear in a lot of cases. And I'm curious because you use um, Tanisha Fossil's buffer state variable um, but it doesn't show up as being um, statistically significant in some of your analysis. And, and I'm, I'm curious as to why that might be. And I wonder if part of the reason might be that there is another variable that could be masking the effects of this third party intervention. And that is that you find that in a lot of um, sectarian societies that have deep sectarian divisions and you use the the ethno-linguistic factionalization variable that chances of some of these outcomes are much higher and i wonder if a lot a lot of those countries where those there are those deep sectarian divisions they're they're often there in part because of a history of foreign meddling 
a history of outside intervention, a history of foreign powers sort of exploiting those divisions um, for various reasons, whether it's colonial control or to meddle in somebody else's uh, sphere of influence. And so those might be the cases actually where you would expect there to be some sort of third party um, state there that's sort of lurking in the shadows, waiting to, to sponsor an insurgency against any government you install. So um, that was one thought that arose in my head. Another one that, that sort of was constantly in my head as I was reading your book is this question of, well, and you address this in the conclusion, if not regime change, then what? So can we do any better with any other alternative method? And, and as you know, from my research and my findings, you know, a lot of times regime change is chosen because policymakers get frustrated with other policy instruments like coercion, course of diplomacy, or even inducement. So I was curious, I thought, well, you know, if we opted for some of these other, uh, other options, is there a local, local, lo lower likelihood of civil war? Is there a lo lower likelihood of interstate conflict? And I honestly don't think that there is. Now, that's not an argument for regime change, because I think regime change has a lot of costs inherent in it. But you could imagine that, let's take the case of Ukraine. Let's just say Putin, after reading your book, says, you know, I don't want to get involved in, in a messy insurgency. I'm not going to install a government here in, in Kiev. Obviously, it would be good news for any Ukrainian that does not want to be ruled by a, a Russian-backed puppet, um, but doesn't improve Ukraine's security. I don't think so, because any Putin-led government in Moscow is not going to accept a Western-aligned government in Kiev. So you're going to see this higher probability of interstate conflict, even without regime change. Let's think of another alternative. Imagine, if you will, for the sake of argument, that, that Kiev isn't receiving Western aid. And so now it's, it's somewhat of a sitting duck. Now Russia is in a position where it could pretty you know, easily coerce the government in Kiev to do what it wants. That presents a dilemma for the government of Kiev. Even though it's not foreign installed, it faces pretty much the same dynamic that you're identifying. It could concede to Russia's demands because it, it doesn't you know, stand much of a chance against the Russian military, but that's not gonna go over well domestically. And as long as there are domestic groups that say, hey, we have a chance here to resist this, they're gonna be mad at the government of Kiev and quite likely rebel against it. Now, the government of Kiev could say, well, because of that rebellion, you know, we're not going to give in. We're not going to concede. Well, then you're back to the scenario where you're going to have higher levels of, of conflict and crises between um, Russia and the Ukraine. So, so again, regime change is a very costly way to go about some of these, um, to go about correcting this interest asymmetry. There are other policy tools, such as coercion or inducement. But I think from a policy standpoint, we have to remember that they don't necessarily um, solve that problem of interest asymmetry. They may save you a lot of money and, and um, the pain of trying to oppose a foreign government, but they don't necessarily solve the interest asymmetry problem, which you identify as underlying all of this. So the last thing I wanted to ask you about and, and sort of think out here is that this difference you talk about between institutional regime change, which is when the intervening state comes in and institutes a set of new institutions versus leadership regime change, which is when the intervening state just pops in a new leader. And you know that there's different types of institutional regime change you could do. You could try to impose a democracy, and this is more likely to succeed under certain conditions. 
Um, or you could try to establish authoritarian institutions. And you say, you know, under certain conditions, either of these models could work. We, we might not, you know, for obvious reasons, prefer to install an authoritarian regime, but if, if you're an intervening state and your primary goal is, is to get this target to do what you want, you know, this would be one way of going about it. But what struck me, what struck me is that even though these cases in which the institutions succeed in taking hold seem to be marginally, um, well, let's say less prone to the bad outcomes that you identify. The leadership regime changes where you pop in a dictator. Those seem, those, those you counted, those you showed actually lead to pretty poor outcomes, higher chances of civil war, higher chances of interstate conflict. And I'm a little curious as to why. What really is this difference between putting in a dictator who, you know, develops a police state to control the population, uh, a Pinochet in Chile, for if you will, or Mobutu in Zaire, versus um, these cases where you construct an institutional regime change, but you've put in authoritarian institutions. Um, and I wonder how much of some of that failure that you're seeing is really fail the failure that arises when the foreign intervener kind of, for, for one reason or another, could be for geopolitical reasons, shifts in the balance of power, domestic political pressure, withdraws foreign aid for its puppet. Because as you, you know, you see with what happens, for example, with Mobutu, who, you know, you use as a, a case study here in your book, um, you know, once, once, the United, once the Cold War is over and he, he's no longer a, 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 a tool, you know, for, for the United States government, there's the withdrawal of foreign aid. Um, and so a similar story, of course, happens with, with Eastern Europe and the collapse of a lot of these governments after the end of the Cold War. So um, I'll wrap it up there. But again, great book. It, it, it you know, is, is engaging, um, very well-conceived, well-supported argument. All right. Excellent. Um, and with that, we'll begin the Q&A portion of our event. Uh, as a, just a last reminder, I know there's been a lot of good questions coming in so far. Um, so I, I might try and group certain common ones together uh, just so we can get through more. For those of you watching on the Cato Institute website, you can input a question via, there should be like a little uh, window on your page that you can input the question from. And for those of you watching at home, not at home, everyone's at home. If the, for those of you watching on social media, um, you can submit questions using the hashtag CatoFP. Uh, so this is a comp, so we've already gotten several questions on this. Um, including from uh, Don Baldivin, um, a couple anonymous uh, question askers. Uh, but what about the success stories, right? What about the uh, you know the Japan's and Germany's of the world? I know that this is a a common, a very common question. I've I've actually uh, watched a couple other talks that Alex has given on this book uh, in in preceding weeks, and this comes up a lot. So I think we should begin. Uh, right there and and sort of Alex, if you could talk about what does you know why were they successful? Um, what makes what might make them different from others? Uh, and and give us some background on that. And then for Melissa, as part of this question, um, in in when we were prepping for this, you sent me an interesting article you wrote back in two thousand nine about how the uh, United States handled the early days or the early years even of. Uh, its presence in 
Japan and Germany after the end of World War II. Um, and so I, I thought that might be useful for uh, contextualizing some of these perceptions that, well, number one, it was, you know, it was relatively cheap and easy uh, to sort of establish a new government there once the war was over. Um, and I, I think that's a common perception that might not play out if you actually look at the history. But um, Alex, if you could start us off um, with, with this, that'd be great. Sure, happy to. It's a great question. Uh, and uh, it helps explain. So we, we've, we've touched on this question of why um, the United States or American policymakers keep coming back to this tool uh, of regime change. And what is it that you know, is so attractive uh, to them about this. And, and the, the World War II cases uh, of Germany and Japan are a big part of that reason is that, yes, there are these successful cases you can point to and say, well, hey, uh, it worked there, why not here? Um, and what, uh, what people who make the argument tend to overlook is that uh, the conditions in those cases are very unusual uh, and quite rare. Um, first of all, regime changes hardly ever happen against great powers because you have to fight World War II uh, to do it. Um, so Lindsay O'Rourke documented all of these covert attempts to meddle inside the Soviet Union that the United States did, and it just, they all get wiped out because you're dealing with a very uh, strong state there. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, if you're, if you're thinking about uh, places to overthrow, those are not going to be uh, very attractive uh, targets. But if you do, uh, those places have certain uh, uh, preconditions that make them more amenable uh, to some kind of institutional transformation. Um, so the comparative politics literature talks about like what kind of things uh, are conducive to stability and to democratization. And one of the big ones is uh, uh, GDP per capita, like how wealthy is the country? Does it have a strong middle class? Does it have a, uh, you know, industrial base uh, to build on? Uh, and those those countries had that. It was we had wrecked it, but it was there. It was still there. Um, ethnic homogeneity is another thing that makes democratizing easier because you don't have all these competing uh, interests and in different ethnic groups uh, to deal with. So, written about this, it's not like this is not known. Eva Bellin wrote a great about the mid 2000s that made all these points and went, you know, point by point through the differences between Afghanistan, Iraq, and these Germany and Japan cases. Um, also, uh, countries were utterly destroyed, uh, and so they needed help uh, rebuilding uh, and, um, you know, willing to do that. And finally, both of them faced a massive external threat. Union. That was a shared threat between them and us. Uh, and compared to the tender mercies of the Red Army, I think um, uh, I think the uh, German and Japanese people were uh, much more willing to go along with uh, the United States in that scenario. Um, so that's a case where the interest asymmetry right is reduced by the common threat. Um, I'll just make a couple of other points. It, most of the time. Well, I'll, I'll stop. Those are those are the the, the Germany Japan specific points, and I'll let Melissa pick up there. Yeah, I you know I think Alex 
you know, hits the nail on the head. There's there's dramatically different conditions that that are favorable in this in this instance. Um, my research, my early research on this this case that that um, you mentioned in the Journal of Interdisciplinary History from 2009, also actually looks a little bit more at at what U.S. policies were on the ground, um, actually prior toward prior to to Germany's defeat, because of course. Uh, the United States or the Allies actually have to occupy parts of Germany um, before the actual end of the war, before for Germany's unconditional surrender. And it's during those periods that you actually see highly coercive tactics are used um, by the U.S. military, um, things such as collective punishment, uh, in order to ensure cooperation from the local population. Now, in terms of why those countries, you know, turn out to sort of become successful democracies, I would point to a lot of the things that that Alex is saying. Um, but I, the takeaway from my research is that, you know, destroying the the target state's military plays a big role in your ability. And of course, this is one of Alex's key points: is is destroying this military plays a key role in your ability to construct a new government. Because if you don't, you know they could just evaporate and, and come back and live to fight another day. And, and of course, you know, World War II, you get the complete destruction of the opponent's military. And in addition, um, you know, it loses credibility, right? So the, those forces that had, had led this, this fight, they, they lost credibility politically. And so that creates this opening for you to come in and create an alternative form of government. If, if I may too, uh, add on to this. Ben, I don't know if you had something to add here as well, but I, I think speaking to what Alex mentioned about the uniqueness of the cases of Japan and Germany, um, I would add that another thing that made it unique was that uh, regime change is most often, if I'm reading Alex's case studies right, regime change is something that is most often done between states with great power asymmetries, and that regime change results after the end of World War II because of how that war occurs and how it shakes out. But the, the sort of conceptualizing for fighting World War II isn't like a regime change operation. It's a, it's a massive great power conflict that is fought for many other reasons, and then regime change comes out the other end because of how the war ends. And so I think when it comes to that, those cases of Japan and Germany, you know, when when people point to them and say, well, it worked there, why can't it work in Iraq? Why can't it work in Syria? Why can't it work Libya, et cetera? Is that you know, like that that you're you're it's a misreading of the circumstances around it which causes uh the, the issue. Um and it's not to say that, you know, we shouldn't have, because I, I saw uh, some comment come in on, on the Slido. It's not to say that, you know, we should have not have done regime change in those instances against those regimes, because they were very horrible regimes, but it's to say that the way that that happened. Uh, is very different from the way that most regime change instances do occur. And so therefore, it's hard to generalize the success of the regime change operation in that instance across other cases. Um, so Ben, I don't know if you wanted to, to chime in here on the 
uh, Germany uh, and, and Japan thing. I'll just uh, hop in really quickly uh, to say it's just worth keeping in mind these cases too. Uh, I've gone back and looked at, you know, essentially like as they're setting up the school of uh, civil affairs and military governments, you know, in preparation for invading Germany and uh, especially Italy, um, the initial plans were not so much, you know, to do these big nation building missions in either of these cases. Um, it kind of results at the end of the war in realization that, oh, this these countries, we defeated them much more uh, as Melissa mentioned, we went through uh, very lots of coercive tactics and kind of in process of fighting the war realized this is going to be a much bigger undertaking than we uh, initially thought, even when we were thinking about possibly uh, doing regime change at the end of the war. So it's worth keeping in mind as well that these uh, missions end up shifting based on kind of what we're seeing on the ground in these long protracted wars, which oftentimes in regime change missions, as all the cases in Alex's book lists, they're much shorter wars. So there's a lot less time to kind of think through what all the uh, options and what's what the facts on the ground actually are. Uh, just because I feel compelled to share something I found in the archives. One of my favorite things I found in the invasion of Italy is that we had a large assumption that we could just walk in uh, to these town halls in Sicily and Southern Italy. They would have their entire town hall set up with typewriters and all the bureaucrats at their desks ready to go. So we could just kind of put them to task working for the military government. And the first thing you read from everyone writing back after the invasion of Sicily is where are the typewriters? Uh, we have no typewriters. How can we do anything without typewriters? So this kind of just gives the idea of, um, you know, there's lots of like pre-assumptions that go in. And even in those cases, they were broken down very quickly once they were actually on the ground and realized they needed a much bigger uh, strategy and different types of tactics uh, that were needed. Great. That's a that's a great anecdote, Ben. If I could just add one, a couple more points. Yeah. Uh, one is, and to put in a, a, a plug for Melissa's book, this is exactly the puzzle that motivates Melissa's excellent book, which everyone should read, which is most of these, uh, most regime changes occur in highly asymmetric diets. You know, one, the intervener is much more powerful than the target. And the puzzle is, well, why can't you get them to do what you want uh, without having to do uh, regime change? Um, and so it's just a f most of the cases fundamentally different from the World War II kinds of cases. The, but the whole uh, strategies that get adopted after World War II raise this very interesting question, which I've thought some about, but not a whole lot, is why do one versus the other? Right? When do states choose to uh, build institutions of, of one type or another versus not? Um, uh, because the if you just look at the United States historically, it was very weird pattern, right? Uh, before World War II, we intervened often in Latin America. I mean, in the Caribbean and and Central America, and sometimes we tried to democratize, and sometimes we didn't. Then in the Cold War, we you know Germany and Japan accepted. Uh, we basically you know didn't care about democracy. We were content to install dictators, and then after the Cold War, all of a sudden we're back to this. Uh, we end up in institutional building strategies. Um, so I think a great question to, and I think Ben's research gets at this, is, you know, why uh, do the one versus the other? Okay, great. Um, the next question from um, Andy Goodhart from uh, Alex's own uh, George Washington University. He writes, I'm interested in how often regime change seems aimed at achieving goals directly in the country being invaded and how often it's about signaling to third parties. Are there cases where regime change seems either to be a threat to others 
or a way of building legitimacy with third parties. And I think this gets to uh, some of the questions that Melissa raised in her comments about um, how, what is that role there of, of when third parties can support um, insurgencies and that is that, does that have a, an impact that uh, might be overlooked? Um, so I think Alex, you can uh, start us off there. Sure. Uh, that's an excellent question, Andy, and thanks, thanks for it. And thanks for coming. Um, you know, in sort of thinking uh, about these cases, the ones that sort of pop to mind uh, in regard to your question are the Cold War cases uh, by the United States, uh, where the United States, rightly or wrongly, perceived certain regimes as possibly going to go communist, somehow uh, 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 tied to the Soviet Union and, and potentially falling into the Soviet camp. Uh, and the United States, in several of those instances, chose to go after those governments, even though it was it was known at the time that, you know, Jacobo Arbenz was not communist, although our ambassador said, well, he, you know, looks like a communist, talks like a communist, if it quacks like a duck, it's a duck. Um, uh, but there are very few communists in Guatemala. Uh, it wasn't on the verge of, of turning into having a Politburo. Um, but the United States intervened in some of these places, I think, to say, hey, this is our backyard. Uh, don't think you can uh, come in here and uh, you know, try to spread your influence in the area. And ironically, the Soviets were not really uh, involved in any of those cases. So it was kind of a, an exaggeration uh, on our part. I mean, the, the point that Melissa raised about uh, third-party intervention, the, this is a fantastic uh, point. I wish I'd thought about it in, in the book, but you know, you sort of push the ball far, the boulder far enough up the hill and you kind of give up after a while. Um, but it would be a great question to pursue. Uh, I mean, I, my, of course, initial response was the one that you thought of, which is, well, what about, what about, what about these other cases where this, uh, where there's no real interveners and yet uh, no meddlers from the outside and yet you still see bad outcomes in the countries. Guatemala would be uh, exhibit A there. But uh, you're right that in a lot of cases, say, think of the Soviets in Afghanistan back in the 1980s, where we were more than happy to channel billions of dollars worth of military hardware and aid through Pakistan. Uh, and Pakistan was happy to give them some sanctuary. And of course, then Pakistan reprises this role uh, uh, 20 years later uh, in, in our case. I think that certainly, so what often happens, say, in a military disintegration scenario is these folks from the army or the military running away from being captured need a place to go. Uh, it's not always across the border. So in Yugoslavia, when the Nazis uh, blitzkrieged into Yugoslavia in April 1941, the army melts away and it goes into the mountains, uh, of which there are quite a few uh, in Yugoslavia. And they didn't really have much in the way of, of external support to get going. Um, but in many instances, they do uh, go across the border and often get support. The, F, the Taliban case is an obvious one. Another I would point to is the Khmer Rouge uh, in Cambodia, who flee to the Thai border, and then the Thais, the Chinese, and the United States work together to uh, supply them uh, with the means for resistance. Um, uh, so I think that would certainly be, that's certainly an exacerbating 
factor that makes a bad situation worse. Great, thanks, Alex. Uh, ben or Melissa, did you want to jump in on this as well? Um, I'll just say, you know, it, I, it, to me, it's 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 a curious question: how much foreign support um, sort of predicts success and failure over the long term? Because um, absolutely, so there are these cases where you know outsiders are supplying the insurgency, but you know the Cambodia case is a great example. Once outsiders stop supplying that aid. <laughs> Suddenly the problem, I don't want to say it goes away. Obviously, you know, there's a massive uh, UN peacekeeping mission that has to go to Cambodia and, and, and attempts to rectify this. But but the 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 long-term outcome, you know, looks very different once once foreign meddlers, um, you know, once their incentives change and and, and their activities change. That's absolutely true. And of course the end of the Cold War uh, shows this in spades, which is a lot of conflicts that have been going on owing to external support from the United States uh, and, the so and the Soviet Union dries up uh, and the parties involved become much more amenable uh, to settlements. So Nicaragua, um, El Salvador uh, are good cases of this. And the one you mentioned, obviously, uh, in Cambodia. Um, yeah, I mean, it would be interesting to see, um, you know, whether you could catch variation in uh, support or sanctuary. Because we know from the Civil War literature that having external support of sanctuary is a big predictor of rebel success or rebel viability. Um, and so taking that away, obviously, is going to make things, their lives much more difficult. And I'll, I'll just add to Andy's question uh, really quickly that uh, I think Alex is exactly right. There are some cases where there is some signaling going on, especially in the Caribbean and Central American cases pre-World War II that he's talking about. There, the Roosevelt Corollary essentially gets created as a way to prevent uh, German and British influence in those countries where we're intervening and overthrowing regimes in Dominican Republic, Haiti, Mexico, uh, largely because we're afraid they're too close to the Germans and British. Um, but just to turn Andy's question around a little bit, um, there's often cases with the United States that we overthrow governments and we don't realize that we're sending these third party signals. So, you know, the most famous example recently is uh, in overthrowing Libya's government in 2011, uh, that sent a signal to the North Koreans that we really should not give up our nuclear weapon. Uh, and even going so far as John Bolton saying, you know, we want to have a Libya model for our negotiations with uh, North Korea, you know, put up, you know, really big block, you know, you know, really big, uh, screaming lights to saying, absolutely not. We, we know what happens uh, when we, you know, if we do give up our nuclear weapons. So I think sometimes actually there are these signals being sent out, but the United States and other countries aren't aware of the signals that they're sending. Great. All right. Um, I'm going to group several questions together with this next one, um, because I think they, they hit on a, a couple similar themes. Um, one of them has to do with, or so the first grouping, um, we'll do these separately just to make it easier to answer. Um, but for the first grouping, uh, this has to do with, uh, Alex, how you looked at the data and, and, and some of the results. Uh, Michael Holmes asks, uh, did you test whether the regime type of the intervening state mattered to the consequences of regime change? Were democracies more successful? Um, or not, as liberal peace theory might suggest. And then um, Ed Chambliss asks a similar sort of question about the data. Is there more, 
is there a greater chance of success when the exercise, uh, when regime change involves simply the separation of a specific territory uh, and the creation of a new country as with the creation of Panama? Um, so Alex, if you could uh, add, answer both of those, just because it's, I think, related to like how you uh, looked at the data. Sure. So just to, to give a little background here, um, the time period I was looking at was a broad one, uh, but it goes sort of limited by the, the ability to gather quantitative data in international relations, which is essentially the post-Napoleonic period. So you get a good 200 years, but you can't really do all of history, to, at least if you want to use sort of quantitative methods to, to sort of correlate across these, across these cases. Um, and what I found was 120 instances of leader uh, change. Some of those have like multiple leaders changed in a single episode. So the Guatemala case of 1954, one, two, three uh, leaders are removed in a matter of days uh, before uh, Castillo Armas uh, ends up as the one we settle on. So, you know, more than 100 episodes of this over about 200 year period. So, you know, once every other year, this is not a, a super rare event. Um, in terms of looking at the regime type of the intervener, um, I did this in a, in a separate project where I looked at um, the success of democratization after regime changes by democracies. Um, and one of the most interesting things I found is that how rare it is for democracies to promote democracy when they do regime change, only 30% of the time. Uh, did they attempt or have the intention to uh, to change the regime? And, and in those cases, there's a, a handful of successes and they, they stick out uh, as the ones that we've already talked about. Germany, Japan, Panama, 1990. Um, there's just not very many. And the, there's the failures outweigh the, the successes and the failures tend to happen in these places that have heterogeneous populations, very low income, all the things we sort of you know, think we know about the, the prospects for democratization. I did not look at the uh, some of the analyses in the book on conflict outcomes and divide the intervener um, by regime type. Um, my suspicion is that uh, I wouldn't find a, a lot of difference um, I focused much more on the strategy that was used. Uh, I actually might find a better outcome for Soviet cases than maybe American cases, thinking of the Eastern Europe situations, um, which speaks to the building of repressive institutions, uh, which uh, in some cases, it didn't completely prevent uprisings in those countries, but it did uh, uh, keep many of them peaceful in a not very nice way uh, for a long time. You know, and the second question about separation of, of territories, so like creating, hiving off uh, a section of a state to create a new state. So this is the Panama example is uh, the United States wants to build across Isthmian Canal. We had talked about doing it in Nicaragua and then we changed our minds and decided to do it in Panama. Panama was part of Colombia. Uh, at the time, and we supported a uh, resistance movement uh, in 1903 to 
uh, create an independent Panama, which we then negotiated a deal to, to build a canal. Um, so my, that doesn't show up in my case universe because it's a part of a, it's a piece of territory that was part of a, a country beforehand. And we, the intervention is to make a new country. Um, and my cases is to, are to look at countries that were already independent where you then change the regime um, rather than just, you know, help him, help uh, empower leaders transitioning into independence, say from being part of another state or being colonized. Um, so that gives you a sense of, of some of the kind of cases that do not do and do not appear uh, in my in my data. Okay, great. Uh, the second sort of uh, pair of questions have to do with, you know, if not regime change, then what? So like, what are the, some of the alternatives? And also, uh, why do we keep doing something that has such a, a, a mixed, at best, track record? Uh, so the first one is from an anonymous uh, poster. Uh, I think an alternative to regime change is a limited war for limited objectives, Iraq, Afghanistan, et cetera. However, as we have seen, they rarely end well either. Uh, so where does that leave us? And I know, Melissa, that your book um, sort of looks at part of the reason why do states choose to do regime change when other options might be on the table. And the other uh, question is from Cheryl. Um, why do we keep doing it or doing regime change if seemingly it never goes well, is there a sufficient benefit to, benefit to us on some other level besides just the regime change, either to demonstrate muscle or signal to th th third parties, as we, as we examined earlier, um, you know, military industrial complex issues, right, uh, or to spread democracy, et cetera. Um, so I think, Melissa, if you could start us off, and then uh, Ben, if you want to weigh in. Yeah, well, um, to speak to Cheryl's question, you know, the the, the short answer I think would be uh, hubris. <laughs> I guess, as I said before, what I what I saw in a lot of these cases was even after a country had um, you know suffered a, a major defeat. If you look at the um, British invasions of Afghanistan, and 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 Alex does a great job in in detailing the the first Anglo-Afghan War and its disastrous consequences. Um, that doesn't deter the British from trying it again, and uh, just a few decades later, <laughs> and 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 the rationale is, oh, oh, well, we can do it better this time. You know, we have a different plan. Um, you know, it, it was that general who just made all these mistakes, and and we're going to get a better general. Um, so there was there's so many ways that a country can go about um, imposing another government, and. Um, in fact, if you, if you sort of think about the various ways that this could happen through covert means, through overt means, through invasion, through indirect military support, um, you know, almost every U.S. president since FDR, I find in my research, has, enact, has pursued some form of a regime change. Um, and, and that's because there's just so many ways to do it. And so when you have these big failures, what tends to happen is, oh, okay, well, the problem wasn't regime change. It was, it was this form of regime change. So we'll try a different, a different way. And the reason why regime change I find is so appealing and, and becomes sort of this, this, this um, low hanging fruit is because the alternatives don't work very well. Um, and often that alternative is coercion. It, it, it could be inducement. Um, so there's, you know, it really, what I do in my book is I, I compare these cases of, okay, here's a case where an intervener chose regime change. Here's another case 
where actually they chose to use coercion. And what was the reason why they chose to do coercion? So the Arbenz case in Guatemala pro provides, an, there's an interesting counterpoint to that, and that's Bolivia. At the very same time that the Eisenhower administration is plotting against Arbenz in Guatemala, it actually decides to give the largest um, per capita aid package in the world at the time to the Bolivian government, which is just as progressive as the Guatemalan government, has come to power through a progressive revolution, has modeled itself on some of the things that the Guatemalan government is trying to do, ends up enacting this, this wide-ranging land reform decree, nationalizes its tin mines, but the U.S. response to it is entirely different. Instead of overthrowing the government, we give them this massive age package. Why is that? Well, there really wasn't an alternative to the ruling party of Bolivia at the time, the, the MNR. Um, because during the revolution, the, the right-wing factions of the political spectrum had been utterly destroyed. The military had been destroyed. So, you know, the Eisenhower administration looks at the situation and says, well, either we get this sort of center leftist coalition or the alternative is a, is a far more leftist government. So we'd rather these, these centrists. And so ultimately it's interesting because what this aid package does is it becomes somewhat of a Trojan horse where the United States can now use the aid to say, okay, well, if you want us to keep giving you this aid, well, now you have to enact these policies. Um, and a lot of these policies end up, are, they're aimed at the labor, they're aimed at the left wing of the, the MNR. And so they, over time, they drive a wedge between the centrists and the leftists. And um, the Bolivian government under Paz Estensoro starts turning to the United States and says, well, actually we could use military aid. And they end up using some of this military aid to crack down on the leftists. Um, and it's that military that ends up overthrowing Pazist and Soro. So this is why I was saying some of these outcomes in the long term may end up in the same positions, that, you know, the same kind of things that Alex is identifying. Irregular removal of the leader, um, civil wars, you know, it, you don't necessarily have better alternatives. They might, however, be a bit lower cost. <laughs> so, um, you know, the Guatemalan civil war is horrific. Um, you know, at the time, <laughs> Bolivia, at, at that period of time, Bolivia avoids that. So um, in the end, there are these other alternative solutions, but they run into some of the same problems of interest asymmetry. Yeah, I guess just to kind of build on that, um, I agree a lot with what uh, Melissa just said. Uh, and I think, you know, hubris is a great way to think about a lot of kind of why we keep seeing these actions uh, going on over and over again. Uh, if you just look at the debate now about um, what went wrong uh, with the Iraq war in 2003, as Alex mentioned, a lot of the debate is about, oh, Bremer chose something wrong. Uh, we didn't come in with enough aid afterwards. If we would have had, you know, more, if we would have listened to General Shinseki and come in with enough troops, uh, that would have been enough. And there's very little discussion on basically how fundamentally broken uh, the Iraqi state was uh, that we just didn't know about it. And basically any invasion probably would have led to a maybe marginally less bad outcome with a better strategy, but uh, a bad outcome uh, no matter what. Uh, and so my own work and the way I think about this is we often have lots of uh, fundamental uncertainty about what countries are going to look like after regime change and also what they look like even before uh, we engage in regime change. Uh, and I think uh, Melissa's book, to plug it again, also has some great things in there about how various locals uh, from governments and um, expats will actually go to the United States and say, actually, we can tell you exactly what we want uh, 
we can tell you exactly uh, what our government looks like. And if you put us in power, we can control it very well. Trust us, let's put us in power. Everything will go rosy and hunky-dory. Uh, and because we don't have very much uh, good knowledge and basically what those institutions on the ground actually look like, it sounds reasonable. It sounds low cost. Why not try it? Uh, and I think kind of this hubris uh, mindset uh, and this perceived low cost of, in, of uh, uh, regime change uh, plays out. There's a lot of discussion, I think, too, about they just assume that you know, even if the leadership strategy doesn't succeed, uh, as Alex was talking about, it's just a, such a low cost to install someone uh, and then get out that they don't have to, you know, it seems like why not try it? Uh, unfortunately, the cases where you try to do a leadership strategy end up sucked in for much longer and much more costlier uh, and lead to much uh, broader effects than you ever thought about. Uh, and not looking that far in the future, I think drives a lot of this uh, poor decision making. Um, for instance, my just the conclude, you know, my, one of my favorites is uh, people often say for in Iraq and Afghanistan, if we just had a Marshall Plan, like in uh, Europe after World War II, that might have uh, led to success. But we spent, you know, well, well, well beyond the Marshall Plan in all the years uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, even as a percentage of GDP even uh, overall. And so um, it's not just that you need more resources, there's this fundamental, you know, problems with the active regime change uh, that need to uh, be factored into these decisions. Just to emphasize that last point, uh, pouring more and more money into uh, a place with poor institutions and a lot of corruption is like you just have 50 holes in the bag that's catching the money and it starts to pour out in different directions. I just want to make a couple brief uh, points on those questions. So why keep doing this if it doesn't work? Uh, I'll just highlight a couple of other things. One is um, focusing myopically on the task at hand. Uh, and engaging in a lot of wishful thinking and not engaging in serious analysis about what comes next. Um, that's, uh, that's plagued a lot of these, these ones. The second one is, is lack of intelligence or biased intelligence. And this is a point that Melissa makes in her book, which is oftentimes the intervener doesn't know a lot about the target country. They don't have a good intelligence. So they rely on people uh, who are exiles. To, who whisper sweet nothings in their ears about, oh, this is gonna be easy. People in the country uh, are in favor of doing this. Oh, uh, people in Mexico are in favor of a monarchy. Uh, and, and the intervener not you know, knowing very much uh, takes this uh, intelligence uh, and, and gets a little blinded by it. I wanted to respond to one thing that Melissa said, because it's a super important point, which is, what happens if you, even if you don't do regime change and bad things happen? Um, she's totally right. Turning to regime change is often driven by the fact that getting other countries to do what you want is hard. Uh, that speaks to the poor record of economic sanctions. It speaks to the poor record of coercive diplomacy or compellence. Um, uh, there's even evidence now that uh, more powerful countries are less successful uh, at getting their way. Uh, in, co in coercing smaller states. Um, and so to try and get at this issue of comparing, you know, how do we know the regime change is causing things and they just wouldn't happen anyway? Um, there's a lot of really uh, unsatisfactory ways of doing this uh, with data, and I use all of them. Uh, and they mostly show, and it involves comparing cases that experience regime change to very similar ones that do not. Uh, and then seeing whether the effect still holds. And uh, 
you can see that I did this in the book and it supported the argument in most cases that regime change was still, uh, the countries that experienced regime change were still more likely on average to suffer these, these bad outcomes. So at least I tried to address that question, but Melissa's right, there's no perfect way to, to get at that counterfactual issue. Okay, great. I think this might be our last question since we only have about nine minutes left. Um, but Julian Spencer Churchill from uh, Concordia University in Montreal, I'm assuming it, he just says uh, Conu Montreal. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's Concordia. Um, he asks a uh, question for all, how do you measure the difference between the regime being imposed and the political equilibrium? Uh, Japan's liberal population wanted the U.S. to impose democratic regime change coupled with a guarantee of access to the U.S. market. Um, so I guess, yeah, the, this question of, you know, the regime that the new regime that you put in um, different from, you know, the equilibrium of the old. And does that maybe affect affect results? Um, and we'll just go in order uh, that we did with the speaking. So Alex, Ben and Melissa. Thanks, I'll try to be brief. So it's an interesting question. Um, in most cases, it's pretty easy to tell because you're supporting some kind of political opposition. Uh, this is why in Melissa's book, regime change is often carried out as the presence of a political opposition or some actors, rebels inside the target country that facilitates and makes your job easier as an outsider. And so there is a clear difference between what came before and what came after. Uh, Trickier cases are the ones we've been talking about, Germany and Japan, where part of the one thing we didn't mention is the intervener's willingness to work with actors from the prior previous regime. Yes, uh, many people were put on trial for war crimes, uh, and justly so, but uh, many uh, you know, Nazi and Japanese officials reappeared uh, from before to after. Um, so that is, a, you know, there were institutions that were there and you still have some of the same people uh, to, to man them or woman them in, that, in whatever case it is. Uh, and that's a source of continuity. And then it's like, you know, can you differentiate before to after? Now, of course, I would argue that the change in regime and the embrace of democracy uh, and pacifism in Japan anyway signals uh, that something is different. Yeah, so it's a fantastic question. And just kind of my uh, brain was triggered by what um, Alice had just mentioned about kind of this idea. We actually sometimes keep some of the old uh, regime as much as we can. Uh, obviously, in the World War II cases, there was clear evidence, of, Alex mentioned, of trying to do denazification, uh, de-fascistization uh, in Italy, which is a case I've looked at a lot. Uh, but even in Italy, there was real concerns during the war that we might be going a little bit too fast uh, with this defascistization. We're kind of throwing out the baby with the bathwater, and the state is basically now non-functional or even worse, according to at least uh, Churchill, uh, was becoming likelihood of becoming communist. Uh, so we needed to keep uh, these folks around. Um, and so there is real evidence that even in those cases, and also in some of the cases in Eastern Europe with the Soviets, where they kept some of the old uh, secret police from the previous regime and kind of put them into the new secret police for the communist regime as a way to uh, keep some of the institutional strength that was there previously. Why lose that institutional uh, capacity if you can keep it and move forward? Uh, but I think more on kind of the nature of the, uh, the question itself, um, I think some of the previous examples we've been talking about where um, there is 
there's a thought oftentimes that when they engage in regime change that we are actually um, doing what the local population wants us to do. If you look at kind of the discourse around some of the uh, ad, you know, advocacy for regime change today, it's usually always in terms of we need to liberate the people uh, that are under the, the yoke of this repressive regime and kind of we want you to overthrow this regime to help uh, the local population, regardless of actually if they do view a U.S. installed regime or a U.S. supportive regime as uh, preferable. Uh, and so that come, that's where this hubris and lack of knowledge, I think, comes back to link back to both what Melissa and Alex had said, that um, we oftentimes engage in regime change because we think uh, the new installed regime might actually be uh, useful uh, or supportive of the local population might support it. Um, but we just didn't have that knowledge. We might have been mistaken for a variety of different reasons uh, about whether or not that's actually true. Uh, and so I would just encourage VC, you know, those kind of uh, indications being talked about in news stories about, oh, they would they would welcome us as liberators. Uh, they would uh, welcome with open arms a U.S. installed regime to treat those uh, with a grain of salt. Um, so yeah, just to to piggyback on some of what Alex and and Ben have said here, um, I think yeah, there are absolutely cases where you come in with the intention of perhaps really changing up the regime, but then then. You, you ultimately, for one reason or another, end up actually importing a lot of the same actors from the, the former regime. So in my book, I, I differentiate between um, what I call partial regime change and institutional, um, sorry, full regime change. It's somewhat akin to the, Alex's idea between leadership and institutional. But for me, the, the key difference comes down to who do you end up putting in power? Um, leaders, I argued, face two different types of domestic political rivals either those that operate within their current political system and could use that political system to challenge them. So if it's an authoritarian regime, it's, you know, say a military junta, it might be another general who's, who's waiting around to, to orchestrate a coup. Or if it's a democracy, it could be another opposition party. And then you have people who are outside that existing political system. And these are also often insurgencies, opposition groups that are actually looking to overthrow the political system that's in place and, and implement an entirely new one. And so I argue that interveners most of the time actually would prefer to use what I call outside opposition, that group that wants to completely overthrow things and establish a new system, because um, more likely their, their preferences are closer to yours. Uh, they're going to wipe out the entire new regime and create a new one. And, and as Alex points out, when you have these institutional and structures in place, oftentimes, you know, the po folks who put in power can hold on to power longer. But oftentimes it comes down to a matter of cost it's really expensive to put those outsiders in. It often takes a lot more military commitment on part of the intervener to put those outsiders in power. So what ends up happening in some cases is, is they prefer to use these insiders to, to orchestrate coups. Um, but that does mean, you know, to speak to your question about the political equilibrium and how much it's changing, is that you have a lot of those same actors hanging around who have the same incentives and the same preferences as the, the previous ruler. And so not necessarily a whole lot changes. All right, excellent. Um, we're coming up on 1.30 now. Uh, I don't think that we have enough time to give another full question. It's it's due. Um, so I think I'll begin you know, the closing now. Uh, first off, thank you very much to Alex, Ben, and Melissa. You guys were great speakers. Um, definitely for everyone at home, get your copy of Catastrophic Success. It's an excellent book. Uh, highly recommend it. And thank you to all of you who watched today, our attendees. 
Um, thank you for such an active uh, question and answer period. Uh, there were lots of questions that we unfortunately couldn't get to just because of the time limitations, but we greatly appreciate uh, the very active participation for so many of you. And a full recording of this um, of this event is going to be available on the Cato website, um, so you can watch it again, or you can share it with friends who might be interested in. We certainly encourage that. Uh, so thank you all, and have a great day. Um, thank you for coming to this event.